0: Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. Media portrayals of Orthodox Jewish women frequently depict powerless, silent individuals who are at best naive to live an Orthodox lifestyle and who are at worst coerced into it. In her book, Women of Valor, Orthodox Jewish Troll fighters, crime writers, and rock stars in contemporary literature and culture, published by Rutgers University Press, 2018. Our guest today, Karen Skenazi, delves beyond this stereotype to identify a powerful tradition of feminist literary portrayals of Orthodox women, often created by Orthodox women themselves. She examines Orthodox women as they appear in memoirs, comics, novels, and movies, and speaks with the authors, filmmakers, and musicians who create these representations. She demonstrates how these cultural productions unite orthodoxy and feminism in a complex relationship, where orthodox women continuously question, challenge, and negotiate orthodox and feminist values. Karen Skenazi is a senior lecturer and associate professor, and the Director of Liberal Arts at the University of Bristol in the UK. Welcome, welcome, Karen, to our program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being here. Um, so to get started, could you tell us about your own background and what brought you to this uh, work?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um I should say that when I was a student, as an undergrad, as a graduate student, Jewishness was pretty much the last thing that I wanted to study. That is my my honest truth. Um, I felt like everything in my life was so Jewish, so everything I ate or when I ate or where I ate, or where I visited everything, where I went to school, where I'd gone to camp, where I'd gone for my year abroad, everything was surrounded by Jewishness. And what I was going to study was going to have nothing to do with Jewishness. That was it. I was, I was, that was going to be my little oasis. Um, but, you know, it doesn't always work the way you plan. And uh, when I was doing my master's thesis, I was working on Mexican-American literature. Um, I wrote my PhD on Canadian immigrants, the literature by Canadian immigrants to the US. And then I was working on Asian American literature, which I still uh, work on to some degree. Um, But I think what happened was there was a very personal irritation that drove me to write this book. And the irritation arose from what I saw to be this very common depiction of Orthodox women well really the only depiction of Orthodox women um, as these downtrodden victims as the baby machines very popular language surrounding them and the happy ending for any story that was about an Orthodox woman had to be her leaving the community so if you looked at A Price Above rubies. Um, if you looked at even, even more recent ones, right? So we can talk about unorthodox, which I think has some really valuable bits to it. But again, the happy ending is she escapes her community, one of us. And I'm very sympathetic to the project of one of us and what it does. Um, but at the same time, again, we're rooting for everyone to leave the community. So it really felt to me like that was the only story in popular culture. And it rubbed against me because there are other stories. And, um, you know, I think of, and and if she listens to this, this will embarrass her. I think of my mother-in-law. She's an Orthodox woman. She's not a Haredi woman. She's a modern Orthodox woman. Um, She has two master's degrees. She was the Federal Language Commissioner's Representative of Quebec throughout her career. Um, She headed up the Jewish... Uh, she was the president of, of the Jewish day schools in Montreal, you know, really a woman who is so um, busy and so hardworking and so powerful in many ways, not an image of a downtrodden baby machine in any way. And I thought, where are these stories? Right. Why don't we see these stories, too? Where are they? They must exist somewhere. We just Maybe we just have to look harder for them. So that was really my inspiration that frustration.
0: Right, I I hear you. I really do. Um I'm curious that even in the title of your book you use the term orthodox and even now when you're describing your mother-in-law um you 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 um uh, uh, uh hasten to add uh, that, to, to clarify, well, she's orthodox, she's not Haredi, she's not ultra-orthodox, she's not sort of the most extreme form of orthodoxy. And in your book, you do uh, take several pages to delineate the differences between orthodox and ultra-orthodox or Haredi or Hasidic, these other kind of um, designations of a more kind of strict form of orthodoxy. And and, and at the same time, you you end off by saying, well, still, it would be best uh, uh, for your purposes to kind of look at the category as a whole and not kind of make these sharp distinctions between orthodox and ultra-orthodox. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that in terms of how you see your own project and the, the, the scope of your analysis, um, and uh, if in some ways some things are um, uh, sort of complicated uh, by, by putting it all into this one category.
1: Yeah, it was a decision that I had to make and it was a decision that I knew would um irritate everybody <laughs> which is which is always a good thing. Um but it, you know, I, I gave a lot of thought to it and I realized everyone has a category for themselves and anything less than what they do religiously there those people are unconnected and anything more well they're crazy right so there are so many lines in the sand at some point we have to say okay I can't just look at this one grain and I thought where where am I where am I drawing these lines where again wherever I draw it will bother people it won't they won't put themselves in the same category as those other people Um, oh well I think that's okay. I think that ultimately we can take an area and we can say, look, there are things in common. These are people who um, consider themselves, you know, observant. Um, This is something that's fundamental to their life, to their, to their worldviews. This is something that a way that they define themselves. These are people that will define themselves through their Judaism Uh, and maybe, you know, what one calls kosher is not what another calls kosher, but they're all saying, well, I keep kosher, right? And there are a lot of things that they will say in common. And so even though what that actually means in practice might differ, I think there's still a lot of continuity. I also think that, um, for many people in the Jewish community, you will have Many degrees of observance, even within your own family, right? Never mind in your larger circle. Um, so I think it's it's very typical to have a family where you have very secular members and you have very religious members. You have charedim. So again, a lot of this is about um, a continuum. It's about a spectrum. It's not, uh, uh, I think I say something like, there's not a chasm in the earth between modern orthodoxy and Haredim, even though sometimes people feel that there is.
0: Right, I hear you. I hear you. Um, so, uh, in your your book, from the title and then throughout the, the 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 work, you reflect on a passage from the Bible, from Proverbs thirty one, referring to the Ashishayel. This. Uh, 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 a particular portrayal of a Jewish woman. And I, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about how you use this passage in Proverbs, this image or images of the Eish Shashayel, this woman of valor in your work to help explicate the different um, lenses through which you see Orthodox women portrayed in culture.
1: Yeah, I think that Ish style that image, is a contested image. It's an image that a lot of people see as um, a very negative stereotype, actually, right? It, it's as, as the very domesticated woman, right? The woman of the house, right? Not as a story or an image of a, of a woman who is empowered in many ways, Um and that's really interesting to me. It's also incidentally an idea that gets taken up not only in Judaism, right, but also amongst Christians, right? The the Proverbs I, I think I'm trying to remember. I saw some shirts. They were Christian shirts, and I think they were they said something like 31 girls or something along these lines, right? So it's it's not it's not just Jewish, right? It's it's a it's a larger idea of a woman, um, but very often still, even though if you go through the lines of of these of this proverb, you'll see how many things this woman of valor can do, there's still an idea that what she's really doing is keeping house. Um, but the reason that I came to it was because many Writers are using this image these days, right? So it it wasn't something that I imposed on the literature. It's something that I found in the literature. Uh, So, for example, I talk in one of my chapters about um, the novel, the somewhat biographical novel, Hush. And when Judy Brown published that book, she published it under the pseudonym Aishis Chaim. She later came out with her own name, and there's a whole story with that. But um, as, a, as somebody who wanted to tell a truth about the community, a very hard truth, a truth of sexual abuse that, um, as many people know, this is a community that this Haredi community is not or historically has not been very happy to reckon with. Um, but to tell that story, she chose to tell it under the name Aishas Chayel. And I think that's a really interesting choice, right? She's saying, what does the Aishas Chayel do? And, and there's a whole section in the book that goes over this question. Um, the Aishas Chayel is, is protecting the children, is protecting people from harm, right? So that's how she defined it, not as a woman who's scrubbing floors, right? um, but also, if you look at something like Catterskill Falls, right, in the novel Catterskill Falls, it's a story of a woman who wants to run a store. It's a very modest ambition, if we think about it. Um, and it's not like it's unusual for women in the Orthodox or Kureti community to work. Right. That's not something that we think of as um, something that an Orthodox woman isn't allowed to do. But um, in the novel, there's a lot of friction between a rabbi, an ambitious rabbi, and this woman who has this idea of opening a store and making it her own and building something with it. And the resolution in the novel comes when the husband sings to her, as he does every single Friday night, Esh right? He sings that song Friday night. They sing it as a family to the woman of the house. Um, and when he sings it, he has that recognition that the ashes chayel, the paradigm of Jewish womanhood is not just a housekeeper, right? She's not just, a, you know, just a mom or just a wife, right? She can be many things.
0: Right, right. And you mentioned Judy Brown, and she, as you discuss in the book, she is really part of a kind of emerging or burgeoning canon of uh, OTD literature, people who grew up in the orthodox or ultra-orthodox world and then left it. And I thought it was really interesting that you started off your, um, your book about orthodox women with a whole chapter about Uh, the memoirs of people leaving the Orthodox Jewish community. And uh, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of the relationship between these memoirists and their communities of origin, the communities that they're supposedly leaving behind?
1: Absolutely. And I think any of the listeners who have read your work, Zalman, will see a correspondence right here because I thought a lot about whether or not to include that chapter or whether it should be a separate article apart from the book. Um, Because as you point out, it's quite different, right? I I started by saying, I want to talk about women who stay. I want to talk about women who change the community from within. And that's what most of the book is about. But the very first chapter is about women who leave, which sounds very strange. Um, But the reason is, and here's where where I think you and I have common ground, what I found reading this memoirs, and I think this is very similar to what you found doing your interviews, is that very often, obviously not always, but very often people who leave don't fully leave, right? There's still something in them that's connecting to the community, that's staying part of their families, that's looking at what the community could be and not just what it is, right? Um, What it is, is a place for many people that they can't be in, they don't want to be in. But what it could be, and I think that's something that the memoirs really speak to, is something much greater, right? So even if you don't believe in the ideology or the practices, there is still a kind of attachment to um, the people that you've left behind. And I thought starting with those memoirs is a way of recognizing that even leaving might not mean really just completely walking away, that there are, if I may use this term, degrees of separation. <laughs> 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 um, and I- What I loved about a lot of the memoirs is that there is an effort to rethink what exists, right? To say, you know, so for example, I talk about Hush by Judy Brown um, and I talk about her exposing this problem in the community, not as a way necessarily to simply condemn it, but as a way to say it can be better, Right. Sometimes we have to talk about these things. Sometimes we have to look for help outside the community. But unless we have these conversations, we can't make things better. Um, And I think a, a number of the memoirists really do this kind of work, right, where they're thinking about how can what I write help the community. So I talk also about what I find to be a bit odd, perhaps, which is you know the kinds of covers that get chosen to be um, on these on these memoirs often have a very sexualized and sensationalist element to them. But I think if we look beyond that, we really see these stories of reclamation.
0: Yeah, uh, and so I, I'm curious about this. You mentioned how uh, some of these memoirs are misread. Um, by Western readers. And I'm wondering if you feel that this is what contributes to the, the common perception that these memoirs are memoirs of escape and that the people who are writing them have, quote unquote, fled their uh, community of origin and that th- that they are essentially completely disconnected from their background rather than the reality uh, that you described uh, in terms of how these memoirists themselves depict their relationship to their community.
1: Yeah. And I, I do think some, of, some people are fleeing their community, right? Some are in very terrible situations. There's no question. Um, but even if we we might think of it this way writing a memoir and and here's where we might diverge you know from the sociological perspective to the literary critic writing that memoir is uh in itself an act of something love it could be um it could be a, a, a an opportunity to you know uh digest all the things that happen but in I think in most of these cases, and I would say actually the same for, for non-Jewish um, memoirs of, that are also of this nature, right? So a book like Educated, which was a bestseller um, a year ago, uh, where she's coming from a Mormon family. And she's also you know, telling the story of many terrible things in her family and her community. And at the same time, there's elements of nostalgia there's um a tenderness there's uh a sense of um holding on to the good there as well, right and yeah. I think we absolutely find this in the off the derrich memoirs right there's there's both um one of my criticisms of unorthodox the the series um as opposed to unorthodox the memoir is. And this isn't just my criticism, but I think a lot of people felt that the way that the Hasidic community was depicted was very cold, right? So that there wasn't that mix of the nostalgia as well as the oppressive elements. It just felt oppressive. And I think particularly when it showed this utopia of Berlin, which we don't have in the memoir, right, which is completely diverse and everyone is liberal and they're very happy to take her in, even though she's a stranger off the streets um, and so on and so forth. But I think that's really different from the memoir itself. And that's why I think it's important to look at these memoirs and remember that these are people who have left the community who are writing their own stories.
0: Right. Right. Um, uh, I'm wondering, moving on to another uh facet of your of your book, you talk about the portrayal of uh, orthodox women in mystery novels and how this was uh sort of surprising or or, or contrary to the stereotypical image of women uh, how, What did you find
1: um so when I started this project i a friend of mine, Sarah Walkenfeld, said to me um Listen, you have to read all my fake Hellerman novels, and I—I I was, you know, I was a snob, and I said, you know, I don't really read mystery novels, but thank you. Came <laughs> uh, over with a bag of them, and. Eventually, I started reading them and I got hooked to the point that actually I read one last week um, when years after I, I have worked on on these novels in terms of research. But just I, thought, oh, I need something like I need a mystery novel now. Um, so it changed me. But um, I, I read these novels and they're really interesting to me as a phenomenon. Right. Here are books. So Faye Kellerman in particular, and and in the chapter I trace other writers of mystery novels. Um, but Faye Kellerman in particular is is uh is so popular a writer, right? She sells tens of millions of books. Like that is astounding. One day I would like to sell five hundred copies of my book. That is a small dream of mine. <laughs> Um, she sells tens of millions of copies of her books. These are, these are the books that you find in the supermarket, right? Um, and I promise you, 90% of her readers, 98% of her readers are not Orthodox Jews, right? They are probably not Jews at all. So um, it's, you know, she she's writing from a personal perspective. She is her, an Orthodox woman and she's writing about an Orthodox woman. And again, incidentally... You really see the continuum in her novels because um, exactly this point we were talking about with the different kinds of orthodoxy, but how interconnected they are, her character Rina starts the novels living in a yeshiva. She's a Haredi woman Um, and her husband has passed away and she's she's sort of an anomalous figure on this yeshiva, a woman without a man, right? But as the novels go by, she sort of slips back to modern orthodoxy, which we find out is how she began life. But then she has a brother who's become um, far more religious, right? He is Haredi. And then she has these cousins in New York and they're Hasidim, right? And so they have all the different. So sorry, when her brother is uh, yeshivish, her version of Haredi as opposed to Hasidic. Then there's then there's the Hasidic cousin. So really we see even she tells a story, Faye Kellerman, of many different kinds of Orthodox Jews through this one character. Um, but yeah, it really struck me like why, why have her be an Orthodox woman other than, yes, this happens to be who the author is, but clearly most of what she writes about because it's full of murder and kidnapping and drug deals gone bust and so on is not coming from her personal life, right? Um, I think she was trained as a dentist, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it's really like it's it's the work of the imagination, but it seems to me if you actually trace the way that she talks about Judaism at large, but really focusing on Orthodox women throughout the books, she is making what feels like a very strong argument or push to convince readers of um, how great, right? There's something very didactic here. Orthodoxy is, orthodoxy is for women, orthodox women are, she, you know, the main character is a bombshell to boot, right? A bombshell and a tichel. Um, so it's, It's really interesting and it's kind of quirky, but it seems to me that she's inspired a number of other writers to take this track. Um, And I've also been reading actually, now that I'm a mystery novel reader, as I was not some years ago, I was reading um, some Muslim mystery novels, right? Where again, there's this sort of move to I'm looking over at my bookshelf because I know I have one sitting right over there. Um, but there's a move to sort of do a very conventional version of, of a mystery, right? A who done it, which is always resolved in the end. It follows a very, very typical pattern. Um, and at the same time weave through it little bits of information, always in a very positive light. Um, about this community and these people that the reader will probably know very little about. All
0: right. And, and so and you feel that um, th- this is not um, uh, um, only found in uh, Kellerman's work, that this is a more, a, a more widespread, or somewhat more widespread phenomenon among uh, um, either Jew- uh, Orthodox uh, female writers or writers about Orthodox women.
1: Yeah. So there are a number of of women. I I talk about, um, a couple of other authors, uh, one who is herself Haredi. And I think this is Livia Stare and writes very differently from Kellerman. So her books are very clean. Um, there won't be, it's not, there's no swearing. There's no, right. They're, they're, they're very different. Kellermans have the kind of um, rough edges that we expect in detective fiction. Um, Libya Stair puts her stories in the Regency era um, and yeah. gives them a, a, such a clean air, I would say, that it feels like more appropriate for young adults. Maybe not more appropriate, but certainly appropriate for young adults as well as um, full adults or whatever we call ourselves, old adults. Um, so I think, I think in that sense, uh, they write very differently. Their style is very different. Um, and and also Livia Stair chooses not to make, well, actually both of them, I shouldn't say that. Both of them choose not to make the woman the detective. And that's a really interesting choice. Um, they could have, right? And in both cases, something they have in common is uh the women are not the detectives but they're the ones that are often the brains behind solving the mystery and we can look at that both ways we can say oh here's yet another very conservative story of the woman behind the man right um the the modest woman who just is the helpmeet as opposed to the main actor um And on the other hand, we can see that maybe there's something a little bit subversive in it, right? In that it's the very typical story of the man who takes the credit for all the work. But actually, um, if we dig a little deeper, we'll see who's really driving the car. I use that expression, actually, because very often, and I noticed this in the most recent book, Kellerman loves to mention that Rena is sitting in the back seat of the car, and I keep going. Why do you keep? you are in the back seat?
0: <laughs> I see, I see. Uh, so you also uh, explore um, the portrayal of Orthodox women in the workplace. So not only um, uh, you know, not only in 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 mystery novels, but also uh, sort of active participants of. Uh, you know in the in the workplace in business and and what did you find in terms of how women are portrayed and what what's going on there?
1: yeah, um so again, I think we see this again time and again. I talked about Emma Barnett here in the british context um, and I talked about a woman in the n s a in the American context, and again, we have this idea that it's somehow um Uh, these are antithetical terms, right? That she's orthodox and also some kind of powerful woman in government or in business and so on. Um, And again, to go back to this question of can women work? Yes. Right. I mean, I think that it's more complicated than that. I'm simplifying a little bit, but um, there are, Many communities, most communities, which will allow women to work, but the idea, of course the the premise um the excuse, if you will, is that that way the men can study right that's that's sort of the line that we're given, right? It's not that women are working for their own empowerment, for their own good, for their own ambition, but they're they're working to help men study. Um, and I I always love that line in, in Rebecca Goldstein's book um, about uh, about um, bringing home the kosher beef fry right, and she says, you know, and, and she has this this great line about that's not what's valued in the community, right? Yes, we were never put on a pedestal and told, oh, don't work, don't do anything. We're told go go to work because that's not the important thing, right? Um, So it's complicated. And I I think I wanted to explore that tension a little bit in terms of how both working is fine, it's okay, but there's something about the motivation behind working that complicates it, right? So it's not necessarily the work itself. You can work, but maybe we're not talking about necessarily being a CEO, right? Um, One of the films that I talked about in, in my chapter on film Um, which is a film that is in this category of by women, of women, for women. Um, It's a Toby Einhorn film. It's not a film you can see in a regular movie theater. It's not a film you can rent on DVD. Um, But she tells the story of a woman who is gunning to be a CEO of her company. And spoiler, spoiler, at the end of it, she says, there's only one house I want to be CEO of, right? Because the company is called So-and-so House. And it is, you know, basically her home, the CEO of her children. Um, so, again, right, that tension gets explored and, and the resolution in that film, which is very didactic, um, and which, but which is also not meant for the general public, there, the ending is that's what you should be CEO of, right? So, but then at the same time, her in this sort of interesting moment at the end of the film, her daughter says to her, "Does that mean you're not going to work anymore?" And she says, "Oh no, I'm still going to work, um, but I'm not going to work on Fridays, right? I, I'll be I'll be home to get Shabbat ready." So it's the you know the trying to work through that tension. Working good, working too much, being too strong may be problematic. Where are the limits here? How do we think about that? So I think a number of, so both in real life, but also if we look at the literature, if we look at the films, if we look at these cultural productions, it's a question that gets explored, right? Where where can we go with this work business, ladies? (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, right. And uh, you mentioned that this film that, that you were just talking about is a part of the, a larger category of films that are made by and for um, uh, Orthodox women. And I'm curious if uh, you know how you see the, the kind of utility or the, the messages of these films as being distinct because of who their creators are and uh, who the, the very kind of select Uh, uh, the selective nature of who the audience for these cultural productions are.
1: Yeah. I mean, these films are interesting to me. And, and a number of years ago I was talking to a woman and this was really quite by chance. This was, this was a a moment of luck. um, Who said she was asked to come to Brooklyn to film one of these movies um she was a secular jewish woman an israeli woman and um but they asked her to do it because they had no experience with camera work and um they needed somebody to help and she said she came to the production and she looked at their script and she said there's so much talking in it right you talk and talk and talk films have to have things other than talking right and And, you know, really wanted to help them develop their script. But um, it points to something that's really interesting about about this whole genre of film, which is that a lot of the women who are creating these films have never seen a feature film, right? They've they've never watched a, a film in a movie theater. They don't have televisions in their home to stream films. They... Don't have internet, right? To watch them. So, creating a film was something that was such a, a a true leap of the imagination for a lot of these women. And this was a number of years ago. This is an industry that's been growing very rapidly, right? So, even now, 2020 versus when I'm telling you about the story, which was about 2012, probably she would have seen something different. But I was just very struck by that. What I just tried to think to myself how could I try to create a film if I've never seen a a full production film, right? Um, So these films are different from feature films in a lot of ways. And it also means that the films that are often, but not always, um, some of the most polished are done by women who have um, joined the Orthodox community, who began life in a secular community who went to film. So Rama Berstein is a very classic example of this in Israel. Um, She went to the Sam Spiegel school. So she went to a regular secular school and later she got married and she became a Hasidic woman. And then when she chose to make her film, she chose to make that film for a broad audience, right? Um, Which is something different from, from the women who make the films for themselves. And I went to see um, one of the filmmakers, an Israeli filmmaker, Dina Perlstein. I went to see her give a talk, a very rare talk, actually. She, she doesn't give very many talks. Um, and she's someone who did not join the community, who was born into the community. And she, her films are actually, she's, she's considered the grand dame of Israeli Haredi women's cinema. I know that sounds very niche, doesn't it? <laughs> but she, oh, let's put it this way. She makes good money off of her work. Not very many of them do. Um, and she uses all real actors. So she uses Tully Sharon and she, right. So the women you see on, you know, um, Tully Sharon is from Srugim and, and various other well-known actors she uses in her films. Um, And she's sort of Rama Burstein's opposite. So if Rama Burstein wants to put a window on Haredi life for the outside world, um, Dina Burstein says, my films are just for my community. We already know what it's like here. I'm not going to do a a film about B'nai Brak. My film is going to be about Venice. My film is going to be about Syria. Right, Um, and she'll use. You know, she's doing a film about Venice. She will use Italian actors in her film. She's doing a film about Syria. She will. She won't film it in Syria, but she will use Arabic. Right, she'll use Arab uh, um, actors who speak Arabic. Right, and she wants to give it an Arab authenticity because she feels her community deserves to see the the other world. Right, that's what films are for. The films done in the US that are for this community, tend to be more Jewish. Um, so not really so much like Dina Perlstein's. Uh, And they have a number of themes that they focus on. But there's a certain limitation, which is, um, because all the characters are women or girls, Unless it's a woman dressed as a man, very obviously, so that we as viewers know for sure there's no man involved in the filming of this of this movie. Um, there's a kind of limited number of themes that they or, or storylines, right? So it'll take place in a seminary, right? A girls' sem. That's a very popular um, mode. There are a number of Holocaust films, right, which are always good for. I like that it's good for, but they're always good for, you know, the message of we must hold close to our Judaism. We can't let this go. Um, There are stories of mothers and daughters, right? That's another popular story. Summer camp, right? A girl's summer camp. So it's really, I mean, there's, there's, there's a number of themes, but it is limited when you think about what can they talk about where there would be no men involved at all. Um, and yeah, and I think they're interesting. I think they tend to be very, so again, Dina Perlstein does something quite different, but most of the American filmmakers are much more didactic. They're much more teaching a good lesson for viewers at the end of the day, but there's nuance too. And I think it would be very unfair and, and unrealistic to say that they're just, um, tough stories, right? That they're just about, look how great we are. So they deal with tensions within the community. They deal with sometimes very real world problems. So they might deal with um, eating disorders. Um, Anti-Semitism is kind of an easy one because it's a, it's a good, uh, we, you know, like, like, uh, like these sort of stories lend themselves to a positive, um, affirmation of Jewish selfhood but um, but even within, so there might be stories of uh, of wanting to leave the community. One of the films that I talk about in the book um, is about a woman who chooses to leave the community. and of course it has a the resolution again, like the woman who wants to be the CEO of her house, the resolution is she comes back to the community. she realizes, it's so much better in the Orthodox community. Nobody cares about you outside of the Orthodox community. Um, people are selfish and cold, and there's no community. People aren't going to invite you for Shabbat dinner. She comes back. But I think the very fact that the majority of the film is her trying out the secular world is in and of itself interesting, right and And maybe for some
0: viewers, risque. Sure. I could certainly imagine a film like that not being shown to my sisters in a Lubavitch, mainstream Lubavitch seminary or, you know, girl school. So yes. uh, Right. Obviously there's many levels of acceptability or non-acceptability. But, but, but the, the last, um, the last film that you that you mentioned now does uh, uh, bring up the question of what exactly is the relationship between these kinds of cultural productions and the the kind of establishment uh, position or, or or focus within the community. In other words, um, certainly you could have writers or filmmakers from the outside trying to present all sorts of creative. Um, uh, you know conflicts or resolutions or 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 um, kind of um, uh, off the beaten track. You know characters, but um, uh, but but to what extent are the cultural productions that are produced by people in the community themselves, loyal members of the community? To what extent are they there to really challenge the boundaries of their own community, and to what extent are they really there to reaffirm them, even if? through a kind of circuitous route?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think, um, you know, I think you can look at a lot of these films in more than one way easily. Um, And I think that we also have to remember that they go through an editing process that means that some of the more challenging aspects are not what we see in the end. Right. Um, and so it's, it's hard to know exactly how much challenge the filmmaker herself might want to have in the film or imagine in the film. Um, and it's also, sometimes we watch elements of these films and think, oh, she snuck that one by, right? Um, but I think there is a lot of reaffirming, absolutely. And, and in fact, Yul Finkelman writes about this, this idea that um, one of the things that we see very often in not just the films, but even things like um, board games, right? All kinds of productions that are in the Haredi world are often a kind of adopt and adapt, right? So we adopt things from the outside world and we adapt them. We, we them in a sense, right? So Then what so we don't so those of us in the community, if we're in the community, we don't have to go outside to look for this, right? We have it. We don't need your uh, Hollywood films, we've got our own Dina Perlstein films, right? So it it creates that sense, And, and there's there's an idea that one of the reasons rabbis will condone this kind of these kinds of productions is exactly for that, right? So don't give people what they want. So they don't have to go elsewhere looking for it. Right. And I think, I think that's really true. I think that, and it makes sense, right. If you make the boundaries too rigid, then people won't want to stay. Right. So this is in part about allowing or giving people the feeling that they want to stay. Um, so I think that, that, that's one element of it. So a lot of the stories feel very affirming. They often have these very pat resolutions. Right. Um, but I think they do get into the tensions and because of that, because there are some tensions within, we have to see them as, as providing something of a challenge as well. And I guess the other way to think about it is like this. So to go back to the story of, um, you know, the only place I want to be CEO of is is my house, Right if we take a small step backwards and think about the amount of work that has gone in to create this film and all the women who are involved in the filmmaking, these are women who are not just CEOs of their houses, right? Um, So very, very, even if we take a step outside of it and think about what had to happen for that film to be created. And that's true in so many of these stories. uh, One of the, authors that I write about. She's a Hasidic woman in in Montreal. um, And she wrote a collection of stories um, that was published. So she wrote them in English and then they were published in French initially. And then, and then in English. Um, And, and it's in part because in Quebec, there's a lot of uh, fraught relations between the Quebecois, the Francophone Quebecois, and the Hasidic community, particularly in Outrema, which is a neighborhood where they both live. Um, And if you look at the way she tells her stories, and they're funny stories, they're sort of these sketches of everyday life. Um, But she constantly demurs, right? She's always saying things like, oh, I was writing a scrap of a story on a, you know, I was writing a little story on a scrap of paper while I was stirring the soup and making dinner for the my 16 children. Or I, I might be exaggerating slightly, but I don't <laughs> think <they're... laughs> But there's really that sense of, obviously my story is not the important thing. The soup is the important thing. The soup meaning my caring for the family is the important thing. But at the same time, she's also writing the story and then is writing the story about writing the story. Right. And all of these elements. So again, we don't have to take too big a step backwards to recognize that there's two different messages here. There's the message of modesty, right. Of, of what's important for a Jewish woman. And then there's actually what the Jewish woman is doing.
0: Right. Right. I hear you. And along the same lines, I'm curious that essentially you're describing, um, uh, uh, portrayals of orthodox women that could, you know, uh, uh, very possibly be described as kind of feminist um, um models or feminist uh you know in, inspired by you know feminist thinking about the place of women in society and so on and I'm curious how do you kind of make sense of this when some of the very creators of these portrayals the authors the filmmakers uh who are orthodox themselves would be the first ones to Uh, say that they're not orthodox, that they're not feminist. In other words, that they would renounce or denounce the label of feminist while at the same time their portrayals seem to be uh, very much in in the spirit of feminism.
1: So first of all, I don't buy it. (laughs) I mean, I will start with that. What happens time and again when women – So when Ruchi Fryer is asked, and she is asked repeatedly, are you a feminist, she knows she has to say no for the sake of her standing in the Hasidic community. So she doesn't, but she knows that what she does in her community and beyond her community, right? I'm not even just talking about as a Hasidic woman. I'm talking about as a woman. What she does is very feminist right she is a judge she is a very important person that's all separate from the work that she has done for Ezra Nashim which is which is the um, the EMT that she has spearheaded right there's no question in my mind that that woman what she does is feminist action so She's asked that question, for example, in the film 93 Queen, which is a documentary about Ruhi Fryer and Aveda's Ras Nashim. Um, and what she does is she dances around the answer. She's not the only person that, I uh, the, the only Orthodox woman of this kind who has answered in this way, who really sort of avoid saying yes, no, well, and I I think one of the common answers that I've seen is um, I couldn't get where I am today without feminists. So I am grateful to them for allowing me to do this, right? So that's the kind of thing, I mean, I'm thinking about, um, you know, when I was watching, I'll I'll just distinguish for a second, when I was watching the series, Mrs. America, I don't know if you had a chance to watch it, I was thinking a lot about Phyllis Schlafly and how the series is really keen to depict her as a hypocrite, right? Because, and and you know what? Probably she was a hypocrite, but the, the series really focuses on this, I thought, that it never, it tries to be sympathetic a little bit with her character, but actually I never had any sympathy for her. And a hypocrite because she goes around, the country denouncing the Equal Rights Amendment, um, denouncing the feminists, right? So not saying, I am where I am today because of the feminists, but saying, you know, the feminists are going to destroy our standing as housewives when she is in no way a housewife, right? When we see her getting her law degree, when we see her writing books, when we see her speaking in front of the government and so on, Um and so she's—it's very painful to watch that depiction. And, and again, I know there's a lot of reality, but I keep wanting to say to myself, "There must have been something else in Bella <laughs> Um But I actually don't see that amongst most Orthodox, or—and I actually want to say, Haredi women who are um, pushed on this issue. I don't think there's a denunciation of feminism. I think there's a rejection of the term because it's a term that within the community seems to mean untraditional, not part of the community, right? Something that we work against. Um, If you think about Mrs. America, there are so many Jewish women involved in that story, right? but Jewish very clearly here is the antithesis of the religious and Phyllis Schlafly as the voice of the religious right, as the voice of, it's the Christian right, but it's the religious right is the opponent of Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug and, and all, you know, Betty Friedan, all these secular Jewish women, right? Jewish means secular in that story. So, what does it mean to be an orthodox feminist? This is a question that we, many people are still thinking about and I think we need to think further about it. Um, We, Rachel Harris and I put together a special issue of the journal Shofar, which came out last month. Um, And all the contributions in uh, in that issue look into that question. What does it mean in terms of art? What does it mean in terms of literature? What does it mean in terms of law, right? What does it mean to be feminist and orthodox and can they come together? Um, The short answer I think is yes, by the way. But again, (laughs) there's a lip service to the fact that it still has a pejorative connotation within the community.
0: Right, right. Um, I I hear you. Uh, Before we conclude, I I wanted to ask you, um, and you you just mentioned now about the the shofar issue. I'm I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about um, uh, what are you working on now or what future projects do you have that you plan on working on?
1: Yes. So I haven't strayed so terribly far, I must admit, despite my plan to never work on Judaism or Jewishness as long as I lived. Um, I continue to do so. And the current project that I'm working on is more of a comparative project. So one of the things that I felt like came up time and again when I was doing research for my book was, um, can you be a devout Muslim and a feminist, right? And when I wrote about the memoirs of women uh, leaving orthodoxy or ultra-orthodoxy, I kept stumbling upon the memoirs of Muslim women who left their communities, um, and who very similar to the Jewish women often wrote these memoirs in such ways as to reclaim what Islam really is and what it ought to be and how it's been distorted by the men in power. Um, So with that in mind, I am interested in working on um, a project that brings together both the lives of um, Muslim and and Jewish women and also still I'm interested in the literature that they produce. And uh, so right now I'm involved in a book group. Um, So I'm, I'm part of an organization called Nisa Nashim, um, and it's a Muslim and Jewish women's network. And, uh, and through that network, I'm in a book group. And for a book group, we read a book, um, every month or so, one by a Jewish woman, one by a Muslim woman. And then we talk about, um, you know, what does it, how does it change our view? And it could be, you know, we read, Actually, we read Catterskill Falls, Um, and what was interesting is that I think it actually, the Muslim women on the whole connected to the character of Elizabeth in that novel more so than the Jewish women who are in the group, who are part of the progressive synagogue, who see, you know, this depiction of an Orthodox woman as so far, so remote from their own experiences, um, so I'm, I'm really interested in, in how do we read this literature? So not just what do the writers talk about, but how do we read this literature? How do we understand each other through this literature? Um, and then I, I'd like to connect that to not just this network, but sort of modes of interfaith activism, right? So how do, how do we work together? How do we overcome barriers? So sort of the parallels and then also the work that we do together.
0: Wow, that sounds fascinating. I I see another great book in the making. Um, uh, Thank you so much, Karen, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. This concludes our program. Uh, Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day.